It is beauty for beauty's sake. It is so incredibly complicated. It is so incredibly time-consuming. And its only purpose is to ornament. My name is Johanna. I will be living in New York City for the next six months. As a lover of fashion and its invisible power, of words, voices and questioning, I do what I like the most. Talk to people whose work and thoughts I find inspiring. This podcast is called Refashion New York City. Elena Kanagi Laux uh, is a lace maker, a lace historian, and co founder of the Brooklyn Lace Guild, and a collection specialist at the Textile Center of the Met. I've been to a lecture um, you gave and was first intrigued by your style and then also by your love for and knowledge about lace and the eloquence with which you talked about it. Um, today I would love to talk about your interesting biography, Lace Making by Hand Today, and why daily life is worth dressing up. Okay, and as I told you before, I would love to uh, start with a little word game. Um, And the first word in your associate, what do you want to say? Wardrobe. Oh, archive. Confidence. Good question. Confidence. I guess fake it till you make it was the first thing that came in my head. Basic. Staple. I don't know. It's tricky, actually. <laughs> Style. Expression. Identity. Do it yourself. Um, I also counter with, I think expertise is important to me too, not just DIY. Must have. Collectible. <laughs> Passion. It's hard for me to say one word back, so I'll just say my thought was like an overwhelming urge to do something. Detail. Focus. Patchwork. Quilt, of course, um, but also society and culture. Mainstream. Not relatable. <laughs> I can understand. <laughs> okay. So that was it for now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I would love to talk uh, with you about style and perception somehow. Um, so what are you wearing today, Elena? Okay. So actually, this is the first time I'm wearing this outfit. So it's good timing to be asking me this because um, it feels fresh for me. But... The other day I was watching Orlando, the Tilda Swinton movie, and there's a great scene where she's draped over a chair in the library in her sort of, I believe it's 17th century um, men's costume with a lace collar and like black breeches and that sort of thing. It's, it's really fantastic. And I had just saved this little pantaloon suit or breeches suit in my um, Etsy favorites. And I went back and I looked at it and I thought, you know, I could really use something bifurcated like a little little Lord Fauntleroy outfit. So I'm wearing this wide whale corduroy black 1980s suit with little breeches and a blazer and a white lace collar blouse um, from Oscar de la Renta, all from the 80s, um, feeling my oats today and a little bit of a masculine twist for me or, you know, androgynous twist. <laughs> Which you somehow counterbalance with your pink hair, or? <laughs> yeah. 
I can't escape the feminine. I'm always somehow make everything feminine. Nice. Um, and how would you describe your style in general? Is there a word you have for it? That's a good question. At different times, I've come up with responses to that, but I think it's it's really ever-changing. And as soon as I feel like my look can be too easily categorized or summarized, um, uh, and that it's it almost feels like it's becoming a costume of myself, and then I immediately feel the need to evolve. So that's been recently, I felt like I had sort of a uniform going of a certain type of silhouette that I was wearing a lot, and I was being too much associated with specific items like flower crowns and that sort of thing. And so I've actually tried to move away from it a little bit intentionally. So I guess it's hard to answer, but I, I really do. I love this new concept that's come out on history bounding where you're looking at like historical dress, but um, using it as inspiration for modern style um, based on Disney bounding, which is where people dress in sort of Disney character adjacent outfits because Disney parks don't allow um, costumes into their parks because they are um, afraid that children will be confused about who works for Disney and who doesn't. So history bounding is the same concept where it's like, it's adjacent to historical dress, but it's not really literal at all. So I, I feel like I'm very fond of that at the moment. <laughs> Thank you. Let me just check. Okay, we are right. <laughs> But it's amazing that you said that because I was in a Disney world in Florida when I was six and I remember having this book where you could have autographs by the customized, you know, you were just looking for Disney characters. And yeah, that's funny. I never heard of that. Thank you. <laughs> um, so um, that's a bit more metaphorical. Does your style tell the truth about you? Oh, absolutely. I think... I can't escape telling the truth with my style. Even um, now when I'm working in a slightly um, more dressed up or um, more conservative style conscious setting um, that I have to look very professional, I, I find that I still find ways to sneak myself into everything that I wear. So regardless, I can't escape myself. Like it, it would be totally unnatural to me to try to dress any other way. So um I'm sometimes asked if I am wearing a costume or if I dress for attention or if I'm in a play or anything, which is all very understandable questions because maybe I look outside the norm. But the reality is it, I can't not dress this way. There's, I feel I have no choice. And I'm also, I also acknowledge that I'm very lucky that I'm able to do that. Um, not everyone is able to dress the way that they choose for many various reasons. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's very pointed what you're saying. That's amazing. Um, and what are, you know, rememberable um, reactions on your style? It's also something you were like also mentioning already a bit, but yeah. This is something I wish I'd kept like a diary of. Um, and at certain points in my life when I was traveling and getting a lot of public feedback from people about what I was wearing, I did actually keep notes of what people said. I think particularly um, I enjoyed in Italy um, where people tend to dress up more frequently. And tourists are really distinct there because they look like perhaps they're going hiking, but Italians are all in the t dressed to the nines and makeup and high heels and suits and looking really sharp. So there was a lot of appreciation there from Italian people that they said, oh, an American dress so nice. Um, so I would be, I would get called, you know, principessa or, you know, bellissima or all, all sorts of things like, 
um, actually, I remember being called um, Cicciolina, who is actually um, a famous Italian porn star, but her signature aesthetic is this flower crown and um, like kind of lacy garments. And she has like always like stuffed animals. And she has this very girly, heavy aesthetic. She had a relationship with Jeff Koons, the artist, for a while, and he's photographed her. And so I showed up to an exhibition of Jeff Koons actually once and had no idea who she was and was really wearing almost the same thing as in the images of her. And I was just totally struck um, and blown away by her powerful aesthetic. Um, It's really just this strong, feminine, crushingly feminine aesthetic that I really love. Um, So when when I was called that in Italy, I felt, I felt really touched actually. (laughs) And it was always in a nice way. Um, And then one more notable experience was going with a group of friends to Dollywood in Tennessee in Pigeon Forge. It's Dolly Parton's kind of theme park. It's really over the top. So we all got our best colorful Western wear together. And we went on a road trip for several days down there. And every day we all had different colorful outfits and we're a big group and everyone had different colorful hair. It was really fun and magical. And we got so many comments, but my favorite two were, we were in a parking lot, I think in New Jersey or Pennsylvania. And this guy cried out as we got out of the car, are you guys clowns? And he really thought that we were like a clown troupe. And we, we were flattered actually, rather than insulted. He didn't mean it negatively. Um, And then when we arrived at Dollywood, again, dressed to the nines in our most colorful outfits for Dolly Parton, someone yelled, look, it's the cast of Crybaby. And I think we just, we were so thrilled. That was like our favorite comment of the whole trip. Amazing. (laughs) So many stories already. Um, And also like that's, you said you cannot do it differently, but it's very, it's very unique. So why is dressing up daily... um, Or why is daily life worth dressing up? Well, I mean, it puts a smile on people's face. It puts a smile on my face. Um, I, when I'm feeling depressed or sick, sometimes I'll dress up even more. Um, just, or at least wear a bright splash of color, even if I'm not feeling well. And it'll put a little spring into my step, which, which is good to get through the day. Um, but for me, it came out of growing up in Japan partially and being really an outsider. And I found that being the subject of unwanted public attention was totally inescapable. And no matter what I did, I was gawked at and pointed at and people would come up and touch me and touch my hair without asking me or or would talk about me when I was around without expecting that I understood what was being said. And for this, for the most part, this was very positive and no one meant any harm by it, but it was just really alienating. And at a certain point, I just realized, you know, there's no point in hiding myself. I was trying to wear hoodies and cover my face. And I finally realized one day, like, fuck it. If there, if I'm going to get attention, no matter what I wear, I might as well wear whatever the fuck I want. <laughs> Pardon my swearing. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so I, and I really just let go after that. And I, and I went nuts and there's sort of been no looking back. Nice. So what, um, are you talking about puberty now? Were you talking about, or like which, uh, which age was crucial for what you were saying right now? I'd say um, 11 or 12 already. I had a very strong sense of, style. Um, I, I can credit my 
older sister for being a champion of kind of like alternative fashion. This was in the 90s. So, you know, we were listening to a lot of like Riot Girl. Actually, we just went to see Sleaterkinney together, which was hilarious that we were listening to 20 years ago and we're still listening to now. Um, And she would dress me up in things that maybe she thought didn't suit her and kind of we would we had to dress up boxes and I got into like playing dress up as a goth when I was like 11. And, you know, it was all just silly and fun. And, and But um, yeah, I think it was in part my sister a little bit that inspired that so young. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, so you are doing it already, but I wanted to go, um, <laughs> I'm letting this flow, <laughs> fall, fall away. <laughs> um, you know, talk about style and biography. So you spent your first years in Tokyo, as you already mentioned uh from about uh 11 we moved to tokyo actually because your grandparents were there as um missionaries mennonite missionaries i yes. said that's right yeah actually my grandparents moved to japan as missionaries in 1951 um they first were in tokyo um, where my mother was born in 1952 but then they moved to a small town in northern hokkaido called nakashibetsu which is really rural and very cold, and they can actually see Russia, um, unlike certain other politicians claim. <laughs> But um, anyway, so my mom grew up there, and she lived there most of her life with maybe one or two years in the States. Um, and then after she moved back to the U.S. to go to college and met my dad, you know, moving back to Japan was important to her. That was where she grew up. So our family kind of went back and forth. And she was a professor of Japanese um, at university. Um, so she would take American exchange students abroad, like graduate students, to study first semester in Japan. So when I was four, we already, I think one and a half was the first time, 18 months. And then when I was four, we went to live in a rural um, area for a semester. And we lived in a Buddhist temple and Then, but then when after my parents divorced, my mom and I chose to move together to Tokyo when I was 11. So, um, so then I spent the next five years there pretty much. Okay, now also, you know, because um, I, um, in some short biographies you have on your website or on the, the lay skills side, you mentioned uh, that your grandparents were Mennonites. So I, I was wondering, Why do you decide to mention that? Or did you see them working? Or is that somehow important for you? Or Yeah, I mean, so my grandpa was actually Amish. And he chose to leave the church because he wanted higher education. Um, and he went on to, through graduate school, as did my grandma. Um, so then they became Mennonite, which was a related church, um, slightly different denomination, but still overlapping, um, but a little bit more progressive. So allowing education and this sort of, and missionary work, um, whereas Amish people tend to stay put and stay isolated in their own communities. Also different dressing or like... Yeah, the dress is very actually, if you if you know what you're looking at, there's there are many levels of dress. So within the Amish community is, itself, there is a hierarchy of more fundamentalists or more conservative groups and others that are a little more progressive, um, you know, Progressive just meaning open to contemporary culture, not political views or anything like that. But um, that is totally personal. But um, I think Mennonites, um, they allow pattern and that sort of thing. Um, and then West Coast Mennonites have totally fallen off and are more like hippies a little bit, it seems like. <laughs> Although I'm less familiar with them. But So they decided after World War II to go to Japan to help 
rebuild schools and and also to build a church. So, you know, there it was slightly philanthropic, um, but obviously there are issues with missionary work that we are talking about today, which is good too. But I'm glad that that allowed me to then experience this other culture and grow up kind of internationally, um, because that really gave me a broad perspective. But to actually answer your question, yes, um, the fact that my family has that background is very important to me. Um, they're, they really value the handmade. They really value craftsmanship. Um, it was very important in our household to have hand skills, to knit, to sew, to quilt, to crochet, to do all of that. So I learned all of that from a very young age. Um, and I participated in things like quilting bees with my grandma. So, you know, I really saw this care for handcrafts. Um, and, and the same is true in Japan. There's this very high level appreciation for, um, textiles and for traditional skills and crafts like that. So combined, I think that has led me to where I am today. Oh, thank you so much. So that's, um, that's one part of the story. And also I read somewhere like that the, the visual um, landscape of Tokyo, how the people were dressed and in a very hip area, you, you are maybe, I'm sure you can spell that better. Did I write it here? It's Harajuku. Um, so, yeah, so I was, I moved to Tokyo when, in 1997, I think. Um, and so this was really when the fashion scene in Harajuku, which is a shopping district in Tokyo, was really blowing up. And contrary to sort of the Western idea of what Harajuku stands for, it's not any sort of homogenous style. It's not really even the name of a style. There are many subgroups and subcultures and different styles that are eternally evolving that exist within this shopping district. But essentially, it was this very DIY community of young people that would gather and get dressed up on the weekends. Um, when I was in school in Japan, um, you went to school six days a week, so on Saturday as well. So Sunday was your only day not to wear a school uniform. Um, so basically, everyone went as wild as they could for one day a week. So Sundays, everyone would go to Harajuku to see and be seen in their craziest outfits. And, you know, it wasn't about money at all. It was about creativity. So that that was really important to me to see, even though I wasn't really able to participate in the way that I can, can dress up now, um, just because the limitations of being an 11-year-old, you know, and not having extra money to buy things to dress up or although I did make some things for myself and you know but I couldn't dye my hair or anything at school um but yeah seeing that culture it really shaped me to and freed me from feeling like there was only one mainstream aesthetic um that I was allowed to cop so um that was that was really formative for me amazing as um I read somewhere there was this um, stuff you said, like this Lolita style going on, but also cyber candy style. You said it was a mix. Is that true? Yeah, there were many, many styles. So there were goth kids, there are rockabilly kids, there are, you know, endless subgroups within subgroups and, you know, niches within niches that get broken down. Um, it, it's almost hard to even put a finger on on what people are doing. It's so individual and so unique. Um, but Lolita fashion was definitely one that I was really attracted to. Um, it's basically inspired by historic Western dress and these very frilly doll-like kind of Victorian and Rococo-inspired 
clothing. But I will say that maybe contrary to the Western perspective, it isn't really about Vladimir Nabokov's novel at all. In fact, I think a lot of Japanese lolitas are try to really distance themselves from that. I think the name is really coincidental, and it and it isn't about appearing youthful in that in a sexualized way at all. In fact, it's the antithesis. It's about really covering yourself up almost and rejecting the idea that women have to become adult sexual objects, which is was very interesting to me. Um, I've heard Lolita's talk about um, how wearing like three petticoats in this big dress makes them feel like there's a physical barrier around them when they're riding public transportation. You know, when you're wearing these giant bonnets, people don't really feel comfortable getting close to you. It is almost like protective. Um, and I really felt that when I when I wore Lolita. Um, so I used to wear it much more frequently. I still have my Lolita clothes, but now I really mix them in with other things instead of wearing them as a full thing. Because for me, unpopular opinion time, having to kind of have this prescripted style of head-to-toe outfit silhouette and accessories in order to be considered part of this style group felt like a costume. It didn't feel like I was being myself. So eventually I, I moved on, but I still really appreciate it. Um, yeah. You already said so much. <clears throat> and, um, you know, after, uh, Tokyo, you moved to, now it's embarrassing. Eugene is the city or Oregon is the state. Oregon is the state, which uh, through your saying, I found out it's in, it was um, the best place for hippies in the US 2013. <laughs> <laughs> And I also read somewhere that they have tie-dye toilet paper. Um, I've seen that. You've seen that? Yes, I've, I've seen that, yeah. <laughs> tie-dye everything. <laughs> <laughs> so did this place also affect your style? Maybe now that I've gotten further away from it. Actually, my I moved to Eugene for the first time when I was eight. So don't worry about um, keeping track of all the places I've lived because it's very confusing. There's a lot of back and forth. And even I get mixed up about what where I was exactly at what year. But I'd say I moved pretty much like once a year for a very long time um, until I moved to New York. But yeah, I, I will actually say almost... Almost um, with a little embarrassment that I that I really did everything I could to avoid the sort of hippie culture and aesthetic, and that I wanted to be as far away from it as humanly possible, because I was a bit of a snotty teenager who thought I was too cool for school, and I didn't want to be part of the what I perceived as sort of uncool tie dye culture. Now that I'm a, a big grown up. Um, I find myself embracing more aspects of that culture completely, especially with the sort of like environmentally conscious living aspect. Um, but aesthetically, my style, I don't, I don't think reflects that so much. I will say that there was a big scene of wearing vintage and wearing secondhand clothing. And that was really big for me. Um, that's harder to get in Japan. It tends to be very expensive. Um, it was not a big of a thing, the vintage clothing, um, industry when I was living there in the 90s. And what what they did have was imported from the US and therefore very expensive. But when I was in Eugene, I could buy really cheap, really nice vintage. I think back to all the things I didn't buy that were like, you know, 20s and 30s dresses for $15 that would now be hundreds. And I, I really kick myself that I missed some gems, but I, I have a substantial collection, so I'm, I'm doing just fine. Um, but yeah, so I, I would say there were a number of people there that didn't embrace the hippie aesthetic either. And there was maybe a little bit of a punk scene that I was involved in. And, and that was more my 
that was more my speed than the sort of patchouli and marijuana crowd. That was less, less my, less my taste. <laughs> Thank you. I was always the, uh, the only hippie in a punk crowd. <laughs> it was not easy. <laughs> we, we had those two. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Anyways, at some, someday you moved to New York and you're now here for some years. That's not so important. But uh, somewhere you said um, New York is the best city. So why yeah. is that? You, you know, you've been to uh, special places before. So what is different here? That's a good question. So I moved here 13 years ago, just just to clarify. So far in my life, I had moved so frequently, as I mentioned, that I didn't anticipate staying here a long time. So I, I really thought I would live here for a couple of years and then maybe move to London and go to graduate school or, you know, something else, go somewhere else. But um, I had wanted to go to FIT before I moved. That was my big plan. Um, and I did, but it took me longer than I expected because New York is so expensive and it's hard to, you know, get your foot in the door here. So it took a while. Um, but I think for me, it's my favorite. It's, I wouldn't, I, I don't know if I can say it's the best city or my, even my favorite city, but it is a beloved city for me because, um, I just, I have such a great community here, honestly. And there's kind of everything you could want. There's every type of person. There's every type of, you know, creative aspect, any, anything you're, you can seek here, excepting at, you know, at the time I was looking like seven years ago, maybe a lace teacher, um, But, you know, there's so many museums, there's the botanical gardens, there's, um, New York is a city of many cities. Um, I have had so many experiences in different neighborhoods here. And when I go back to them, I remember my experiences there as if that was like different lives, different me, you know, um, and my own neighborhood I've lived in for 12 years to the point where I know all of my neighbors and it really feels like a community and I, I really feel at home there. So I think I love New York just because I've spent so much time here. And, it, I mean, it's pretty cool, too. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, like, I think that's, that's very nice. Uh, it's many cities. Yeah, I like that. Um, so, yeah, before we come to Lays, you know, um, since it's my project, I can be very free in what I want to ask. <laughs> you have to say what you want to answer. <laughs> But for sure, um, Courtney Love uh, ah. is an interest of mine. Just, um, I read that you were a seamstress and a designer for her first clothing line, uh, Never the Bride, um, which was based on vintage pieces she got while she was working in the wardrobe of Paramount. Um, so what did you do there exactly? And yes, if you want to talk about it. Okay, so um, I guess I have to bite my tongue a little bit with this one. Um, but, um, it was when I was 22, I was, I believe I had interned for a small brand in New York called Mandate of Heaven. Um, Courtney had found their work because they actually also use recycled vintage fabric and textiles to make one of a kind garments. They're very wonderful. Um, and so Courtney had found them and reached out to them to, um, look for a designer to work for her to create design and so costumes, custom costumes for her. At the time, it was for her stage tour. So she hadn't actually started really ne Never the Bride yet. Um, she was on tour in 2010. So this was what she was going to be wearing, essentially. Um, and 
they, because they had their own brand and their own design studio to run, they, they weren't able to work for her, but they recommended me. Um, she asked for someone that had a sort of punk aesthetic, but couture sewing skills. And that they said, Elena fits the bill. Um, and I went and did sort of a little trial run, um, and made a dress and she liked it. And so I started working from out of her hotel room, actually. So I would come and sit at a dress form in her hotel room and, and just drape custom garments out of mainly antique fabric. So now that I work at a museum, it feels vaguely sacrilegious in, in retrospect, but, um, but many of these were fabrics like vintage from the 20th century, um, being sold in the garment district or, fragmentary objects um, that were not really in wearable condition. So it was kind of repurposing them. Um, But yeah, so I worked for her for about a year and a half. I sewed a lot for her. I sewed a dress. One of my shining moments of my career meant with no sarcasm was when I made her a dress that she wore at South South by Southwest and it got on the worst dress list in this tabloid star magazine for that week. It was like Lady Bunny and all these other people were making fun of it. And I still have that magazine. I was so proud. <laughs> it was pretty funny. I don't think she felt good about it, but I just thought it was it was great. I mean, clearly I didn't care what they thought. So, um, but yeah, that it was just, it was a very intense experience. It was a whirlwind. I could only have done it at 22. I could never have tolerated those hours now. I mean, sometimes sometimes I would be asked to make 10 dresses in a day or in two days, and I would produce, you know, even if it meant not sleeping for a few days. But that's what you can do when you're young. And now I can just have that experience on my belt, and I don't have to, and now I can sleep at night, and it's fine. But yes, I'm so glad I did it. It was a wonderful experience. It was, it was wild. She was my idol, so it, it felt unreal but yeah it was fun <laughs> thank you one more question to that but then i stop and you can also answer it very mysteriously <laughs> and, and now i feel like that, that that this came to my mind i feel like old now but is her life really rock and roll you know is there a different aura or something going on that you feel like that's a rock and roll lifestyle still That's a good question. I mean, I wasn't really, I wasn't rock and roll in the early days of rock and roll. So I can't, I have no comparison, you know, but she definitely had a killer wardrobe and she had a great sense of style. Her um, townhouse was incredibly gorgeous. I also got to work on helping her with um, acquiring some of the textiles she had chosen to decorate that. And that was a really cool project too. She has really She has a higher level taste than I think most people would imagine, um, at the same time being very much punk rock. But yeah, does she have a punk rock and roll lifestyle? Like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to compare that, honestly. So I can't, I don't say, I can say I can't answer that. I'm sorry. <laughs> But you're right. Actually, you had such a different generation. We only know it from pictures or something or videos. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay. Thank you for going in that. Um, And now we talk about lace. <laughs> um, so how did your love for lace begin? That's a good question. And uh, some lace lovers um, have specific origin stories that they had a you know light bulb moment where they saw someone making lace and in Bruges as a teenager on vacation with their parents being dragged around and they thought, oh my God, I have to make that. I have to know what that is. Um, I don't really ha- have a moment like that. Um, 
I just, I was always interested in textiles. I started as a painting major in art school, and then I would go home and sew every night, um, I, not realizing that textiles and fiber art were a, an option to study at all. Um, so when I learned that, I promptly switched majors. Um, and then I sort of just devoured every technique I could. So I've been a weaver for 15 years. I embroider, I crochet better than I knit, but I, I can knit rudimentary. Um, I basically do just about everything, printing, and I did, you know, velvet weaving in Florence and all kinds of stuff. But um, lace was interesting to me because, first of all, it's very feminine and um, ephemeral and beautiful. Um, and it's also elusive for Americans. You know, for Europeans, many people grow up seeing it in their grandmother making it or in small communities. But in the U.S., most people have never seen bobbin lace. Um, the majority of the time when I demonstrate, people think that it's tatting. That's their only reference to any kind of lace making. Um, so I think the fact that I wasn't able to find someone to teach me how to make lace made me really want to learn it. So I'd say about, I guess now eight years ago, I started to look for a lace teacher in New York and there wasn't one. The closest one there wasn't one that I could find, I should say. The closest one was in New Jersey, and it was just a little too far for me to commute after work. Um, and then there's a teacher in Ithaca who's wonderful, who I've now studied with, Holly Van Skyver. Um, but that's, again, a little too far. Um, so essentially, I googled lace school, and the first one that came up was in Idria in Slovenia, um, which I had never been to, had never heard of, could not pronounce, you know, all of that sort of thing. But I found that they had an, a lace festival every June. So in 2012, in June, I went to their lace festival, just flying solo, no idea what to expect. Um, hadn't really been able to book anything in advance because they didn't have that much information on their website yet. Um, most people didn't even have a website yet for lace schools. Now there are some great lace websites with different schools in different regions, which is wonderful. Um, but I just sort of showed up and was like, please teach me how to make lace. And they were really flabbergasted that some random girl from New York City would fly all the way to Slovenia just to learn bobbin lace. In fact, the mayor introduced me to his, invited me to his office for like cookies and they gifted me with this like official Idria doily, like it, and I was interviewed on the radio. I mean, it was, it was very cool. It, it was like a being a celebrity in, in Slovenia, which was very fun. And I'm still in touch with some of my friends there that are really wonderful. I met some great people, and I've since been back. Um, but then I came back to the U.S., and I didn't have a teacher still. So even though I had taken an introductory lesson, I couldn't continue my bobbin lay study really on my own. It, some people are able to teach themselves from books, but this was one skill that I just found too challenging, and I really wanted someone to make sure that I was doing things correctly. Um, so... In 2015, I was finishing my BFA at FIT in textiles, in textile design, and they have a grant for um, art history students to travel and research a single a project based on their own proposal. And so I proposed to go to Europe for four months and study lace making, and I won. Um, just for, you know, for newbies like me, uh, you said in the talk that lace is an umbrella term. Um, so uh, there's different phenomena um, that are described as lace. And I was wondering, what do these phenomena have in common? So that is a really good question. And that is one that is still actively deba debated within, you know, the community of textile and 
particularly lace scholars. Um, some traditionalists include only bobbin lace and needle lace, which are the oldest kind of more most tr- or not oldest, but most traditional forms of lace making in the kind of canon of lace. Um, but I tend to think of it as an open work technique or a a textile in which the design is being created by the open spaces. Um, however, that leaves room for some gray areas. Um, a lot of people now are doing things with laser cutting and that sort of thing. And personally, I wouldn't really classify that as lace um, because it's cutting. It's It's not construction with thread. So perhaps it would be also something made of thread, <laughs> but not any particular type. Um, but yes, that is a really good question. It's very hard to define. Um, and the more you look at it and the more you study it, the more overwhelmingly complicated it starts to seem. Um, I tell this story about um, when I was in on my trip, um, one of the stops I took was in Florence um, with this incredible lace scholar, Tessie Schonholzer, in at the Fondazione Elisio. Now she's in uh, Switzerland. And she taught me a lace identification workshop. And I went into this workshop very, a a little cocky, a little cocky, like, oh, you know, I can tell apart bobbin and needle lace. It's not such a big deal. It's not so hard. Um, I I know the basics, like, I'll be, I'll be fine. Um, And when I left her class, I really felt like, oh, my God, I'm just a grain of sand in the universe, and I know nothing, and I will never know anything. And now I feel like I may be a handful of sand or something. I'm not. I, but I still feel like there's endless information out there that I that you can't know everything. You can't have the answer to everything. And the knowledge and information that we have is always changing. So, so who knows? Maybe I would give a different answer next week. <laughs> Love it. (laughs) And, you know, but it's not the only complex thing about lace. Um, You are specialized in bobbin lace or or you love it very much. And when I watched that and I think you describe it somehow, some way you compared it with um, a computer thing. And I like, for me, that's something I don't understand it just by watching it. It's not, you know, it's not understandable if you've never done it, I think. How would you describe what you are doing there? Good question. Actually, I I sometimes use the comparison of like reading music, where if I'm looking at the pattern on my lace pillow, and I know which way to move the bobbins based on what I'm seeing. And it's kind of like perhaps playing the piano, where you're looking at notes, um, and you're able to translate that into, you know, what you're playing on the keys, because you have this experience, you know, and some people get to the point where they can hear music and just play it. Um, So bobbin lace is perhaps a little bit like that. Um, It just takes time and looking at it. And the more you do it, the more you come to understand it. So amazing. So I'm sure then like what they say with piano, with piano and stuff, that it connects your brain or like that there's a lot happening. Would you agree? Absolutely. Um, I one of the reasons that I enjoy bobbin lace so much is because although it can be somewhat repetitive if you're doing a repeating pattern, um, it never feels tedious. It's always stimulating and it's always a challenge. Um, so it keeps you really alert. So um, for me, although I love needle lace, it feels much more repetitive that I, I'm doing the same type of stitch over and over again. Um, so I feel less stimulated by it, although it's excellent to do while like watching movies or something. Whereas bobbin lace for me, I have to be really focused on it. And as a very crazy, busy, overstimulated New Yorker, as we all are, um, I 
have a really hard time kind of getting things out of my head and just letting go and meditating. So Bob and Lace is how I have my sort of Zen moment where I'm, I'm thinking about something, but I don't have the ability to think about anything else. So it feels very peaceful when I'm doing it. And I can, you know, there's a, there is a point where your hands are just moving and you're feeling what you're doing and, and, you know, you feel your mistakes before you see them, you know, your hands, your hands have the knowledge of what you're doing. Amazing. That's also leads us actually to your, uh, back to your, um, to the last topic and to your, to the traveling to Europe to, to find out more about lace. As you said before, you got a fellowship granted. So you visited different uh, places um, where the, where it was, more or less easy to to find out about lace teachers you have to tell me something about that and also with the language thing that's something i, I loved so much in your talk as you said um, lace is um, language of the hand so maybe you can tell something about that uh, traveling you know it was part unknown or yeah i mean i had a small idea of what i was doing just based on having traveled to look at lace in Slovenia and also in Venice, um, not to study, but just to go to the lace museum in Burano. Um, but basically it was just a shot in the dark. I mean, I, it was whatever I could find online and I, I was really sometimes writing people and not getting responses until a few weeks before I was arriving and that sort of thing. So it was, it was very much lucky for me that I was able to go to everywhere That I did. And, you know, many of these schools are very, very organized and they've been there for a long time and they have full-time students. And so that was very easy to set up. Um, but other places, you know, I changed my trip to go to Barcelona. Like when I was in Italy and, or no, I was in Slovenia and my teacher said, oh, you know, there's this great lace maker in, in Barcelona. You should go. And I, and I just showed up and hoped that it would work out. And it did. Um, but it, it was definitely a shot in the dark a little bit. I had no idea what the places I was going to were going to be like, or if they spoke English. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they spoke none. Um, but really, everyone was so welcoming and so kind. And I met such a range of really wonderful people. Um, I went to 14 countries, um, some of them just to travel through from one country to another. But I studied in seven lace schools. And I went to countless lace museums and cultural institutions and um, archives and that sort of thing to also research lace making. Um, and for the most part, what I found was that people were absolutely thrilled to have an outside person coming into their community to study something that they cared so deeply about um, and so deeply, especially about preserving. So the fact that I wanted to learn from them and then carry that on, that people were really generous with me, which was, which was wonderful. Um, but yeah, language was no barrier for me. Uh, I, I am lucky to have studied several languages. My mom is a linguist, so I have rudimentary German, conversational French, um, and even Italian, just after having studied French, is not so far off. Um, however, um, in many countries, people just speak wonderful English. So in Slovenia, everyone speaks English. Um, in Not everyone, I should say, but, you know, many people. Um, and in Belgium, oh my gosh, everyone spoke perfect, gorgeous English and probably five other languages too. In Italy, my teacher really had lived on Burano Island her whole life. She had barely left. Um, I can see why it's so gorgeous there. But, you know, we just, she just showed me what she would, was doing. She would show me a stitch and then I would repeat it. And, and it, that was all it needed. It was wonderful. Um, they also gave me the 
best latte I have ever had in my life. Um, this was at the Martina Vidal shop in Burano that sells lace, and they also have lace demonstrations and little workshops. So go visit them. If you're in Venice, you must go to Burano. Um, yeah, but in, in, in Barcelona as well, my, my teacher was wonderful, but only spoke Catalan, and I have no idea, no no clue, <laughs> no clue. So that was tricky, but, you know, we used an iPad with Google Translate, and we actually had a lot of fun doing it. You know, it, it makes... Sometimes I think having had that extra challenge in studying lace, it made me have to work harder and think harder. And so I think I learned it almost more rapidly. Um, when I was in France for three weeks um, in three different schools in a row, um, in the first school, no one spoke any English, not a word. And I was totally out of my depths. I hadn't spoken French since like college and I was totally freaked out the first time college. Um, and... By week three, I got to a school where they did speak English, and I just chose to speak French anyway because I was really enjoying it. So it all, it rushed back. It was really a pleasurable experience. And I think there's something about language and textiles that are so interlinked, and they really stimulate your brain in this creative and beautiful way. And, you know, there's all those articles about that staving off dementia and all this stuff. So I think it's, I think it's good for us in many ways to do these kinds of things. Thank you. I was wondering, was there something, you know, like uh, superlatives, but the most surprising thing uh, concerning lace in Europe or like, you know? Yeah. So um, I guess before I answer that, I will, I will, I'm doing this a little bit backwards, but I'll just kind of describe basically what my project was, which I proposed. Um, It was three-pronged. The The primary goal was to um, go and study lacemaking myself. Um, then I also wanted to interview lacemakers um, in different communities to learn about what was happening. Um, and then third, I wanted to come back and start a lace organization to promote and preserve lacemaking in New York City, um, which is now Brooklyn Lace Guild. Um, and I teach classes at the Textile Arts Center. So it's still, it, it really all came true, which to my amazement. <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, even in my proposal, um, my idea was sort of like, oh, you know, it's only old ladies are doing this and they're all going to die and I have to go save lace and all this sort of presumptuous <laughs> thinking. <laughs> um, but when I showed up there, I realized that actually in many places, lace making is still very much flourishing. And there are thousands of lace makers worldwide that are doing lots and lots of things to preserve lace in their communities, um, and which is absolutely wonderful. Um, and there are many young people that make lace. In Slovenia, the school there is actually an elementary school, and all the students have um, bobbin lace classes after school. So all of the young people in the community, boys and girls, um, make lace. Um, so there were m much younger lace makers than I anticipated. Many of my instructors were my own age, um, which was very cool. When I asked about that, I was told that the older lace makers had been making lace for so long that they couldn't explain it anymore. They could only do it, which now I understand <laughs> how, how that happens. Um, but it was a good surprise. You know, certainly there are areas where it's happening less and less, which is very tragic, but there are other areas where it's flourishing, you know, as things happen in the world, things ebb and flow. So, But it's certainly not going away. And all over the world, people I talk to say that they feel that it's experiencing a resurgence um, and things are looking up for lace, which is great.
Thank you. I dare to ask you because I think you're very good in contextualizing. Um, also, somewhere I read you like you can compare it to art somehow, or uh, like what do you love about lace and why do you think it's important to preserve? You know, you could also say like something's just going to. Um, I'm not. That's not my position, but I was just wondering. Yeah. Um, I mean, what I love about lace is that. It is beauty for beauty's sake. It is so incredibly complicated. It is so incredibly time-consuming. And its only purpose is to ornament. I mean, it doesn't function as most textiles do in any capacity to keep you warm, to protect your body, to do anything. It's fragile. It's expensive. It's hard to clean. It's damaged easily. You know, it, it has everything against it as why it would flourish. And really, worldwide, looking at lace manufacturing communities starting all the way back in the 16th century, they really struggled. Um, even though there was a high demand for it, communities really needed a lot of support um, from local government in order to sustain lace making because it was just so hard to make money doing it. Um, what I also love about lace is we live in this world today where you can go on Amazon and you can click on a button and you can order just about anything in the world that's made overseas, totally isolated from our experiences. So we have no connection to manufacturing at all anymore, um, particularly in the U.S. And it can be shipped to you in as little as an hour, you know. And people just don't value or appreciate things made by hand. They, they, they really think of textiles as disposable. Um, this is the inverse of how people thought about textiles, particularly luxury textiles like lace. Historically, people treasured them. They took care of them. They mended them. They washed them. They passed them down for generations. And they really just valued things and they valued skill and labor in a way that we do differently. Um, not that they paid those laborers necessarily any better, but at least they understood and appreciated how much work went into that sort of thing. Um, so what I love about lace is that it isn't it isn't something that's available to everyone. You know, it's it's not a skill that everyone can necessarily have. If, if you want to set your mind to it, certainly you can achieve that, but not everyone wants to spend 20 hours making a tiny little torsion bookmark, you know? And for the more complicated pieces, it would take years to create. Really, I mean, it's, it's beyond what most people can imagine in terms of how long things take. Um, even the quickest patterns that I've made where I'm able to produce maybe an inch in two hours, people are shocked at how slow that is. But for me, that actually is relatively quick in the world of lace. So I think what I love about lace is it's so in con so much in contrast to the, the world that we live in today. And it, um, it really, you must love it to do it. Um, I teach many students lace making and people of all different backgrounds, many makers, um, and artists, but also people with no experience. And it, it's it's one of those things that you either love it or hate it. Um, my bobbin lace classes, some people just get obsessed and they join Brooklyn Lace Guild and they can't stop making it. And it's it's addictive. Um, many of the lace makers I interviewed referred to it as a sickness. One of them said, you know, you have it. And I was like, yes, I do know. But um, and some people actually hate it. I mean, I've had people walk out of my class practically like stomp out because they got so frustrated with how hard it is. You know, we expect things to be easy and accessible now. And, and not everything can be that. And that is okay. You know, um, so I think that's what's so precious about it to me, too, is that it, it is so special in, in our world today, you know. And you were talking about people, but also I remember your talk, um, how many men were wearing lace in the seven, 1700, that's how you say that? 
which was the peak in the 17th century. 17th century was the peak of of, of lace, and uh, men wore it. So I was also wondering when that changed, and um, if that's something important for you now, like that it's maybe connected to fem some kind of feminism, or if you want to like also want to work that that men appreciate it more, or something like that, you know. Um. Yeah, so so lace was completely unisex up until I would say around the French Revolution um, and Industrial Revolution. Men went off to work in factories, as did women, but they kind of rejected um, the feminine trappings of luxury. That, well, they had not previously been seen as feminine, but the trappings of lux luxury and ornament that they had worn in previous centuries um, and became very austere um and you know i think uh, that's a bit of a tragedy actually um and it and it has kind of relegated fashion and textiles to this like lower status in our society that we see it as frivolous but it wasn't always viewed that way um wealthy people were expected to be patrons of the art and to support you know the textile industry and the artist industry and and to you know buy these luxury goods to keep industries going and you know It's not that I want to bring back the lace industry because the lace makers had pretty miserable lives based on what you read, but it's it, it's just this appreciation for the value of of textiles that I think has been a little bit lost. Although I do see a, res a resurgence happening a bit as well, but certainly for me, although the general association with lace is feminine, I no longer feel that way about it. I feel that any textile, any any garment, and any Anything can be totally genderless, depending on whatever you want it to be. And I think men should absolutely be wearing lace, too. <laughs> so nice that you say it, because the first time in my life, I feel like, you know, it's a textile. It has its own life, you know. Who's deciding that? It's, that's just crazy, actually. So now coming back to, to now and uh, <laughs> the future, maybe we uh, take that as the last question. Like, is, uh, What's your future with lace? Oh, let's see. I, I mean, sometimes I have anxiety about how many plans that I have for the future, for my future that I don't even know if I'll achieve everything in one lifetime, but I'm doing my best. Um, I mean, I would love to make more lace myself. Funny enough, I've spent the last seven years of my life thinking about, talking about, and focusing on lace and teaching people how to make lace. And yet I haven't made that much of it myself. Um, I just haven't had that much time. Um, I've I've designed and made one piece before of my own design. Um, and I'm currently working on a second piece. Um, so hopefully I'll develop more of a portfolio of my own lace um, and utilizing all the different techniques that I love, but creating my own designs instead of using other people. So that's a big goal of mine. Um, I would also love to work on getting more lace in like contemporary lace makers into galleries and um, you know, to, to have lace have more visibility for people and to help them develop sort of a visual literacy for how to understand and read lace and to know that it, bobbin lace even exists and that it's not tatting. Although those are such big, huge, colossal ideas that I certainly could never achieve on my own. That's something that many people are working towards as their goals too. So I don't know. I have many big projects, but I've sort of let my career and my life take me a little bit as it goes. And, and I think that's actually worked out rather well, surprisingly well. So I, I'll continue. We'll see. We'll see where I end up. 
<laughs> Amazing. Just one, because I felt maybe there is a circle. Or maybe you feel offended. However, do you feel like maybe like your grandparents were? Do you feel you're, you're like a lace, lace missionary? <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, maybe a little bit. Um, I'm certainly not saying anything so different than many other people, um, and particularly my wonderful sort of lace mentor Deventine has has said before me um and many people have written and spoken and talked about lace but yeah I suppose I could see myself that way but I would certainly never impose lace on anyone I would never force anyone to like lace or be interested in it or to make it or to wear it so to each their own really <laughs> thank you I admit it was a very fast thought <laughs> okay thank you Elena Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. It was amazing. Thank you.